Section 5, Chapter 4, Part 2 of 2 of Creative Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, 2010. Creative Chemistry by Edwin E. Slauson. Section 5. Chapter 4, Part 2 of 2. The modern chemist has robbed royalty of its most distinctive insignia, Tyrian purple. In ancient times to be porphyrogene, that is, born to the purple, was like admission to the Almanac de Gotha at the present time. For only princes or their wealthy rivals could afford to pay $600 a pound for crimson linen. The precious dye is secreted by a snail-like shellfish off the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. From a tiny sack behind the head, a drop of thick whitish liquid, smelling like garlic, can be extracted. If this is spread upon a cloth of any kind and exposed to air and sunlight, it turns first green, next blue, and then purple. Section 4. Chapter 4. Part 1. Of Creative Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, 2012. Creative Chemistry by Edwin E. Slauson. If the cloth is washed with soap, that is, set by alkali, it becomes a fast crimson, such as Catholic cardinals still wear as princes of the church. The Phoenician merchants made fortunes out of their monopoly, but after the fall of Tyre, it became one of the lost arts, and accordingly considered by those whose faces are set toward the past as much more wonderful than any of the new arts. But in 1909, Friedlander put an end to the superstition by analyzing Tyrian purple and finding that it was already known. It was the same as a dye that had been prepared five years before, by Sachs, but had not come into commercial use because of its inferiority to others in the market. It required 12,000 of the mollusks to supply the little material needed for analysis, but once the chemist had identified it, he did not need to bother the murex further, for he could make it by the ton if he wanted to. The coloring principle turned out to be a dibrome indigo, that is, the same as the substance extracted from the Indian plant, but with the addition of two atoms of bromine. Why a particular kind of a shellfish should have got the habit of extracting this rare element from seawater and stowing it away in this peculiar form is one of those things no fellow can find out. But according to the chemist, the murex mollusk made a mistake in hitching the bromine to the wrong carbon atoms. He finds, as he would word it, 
that the 6,6-dibrome indigo secreted by the shellfish is not so good as the 5,5-dibrome indigo now manufactured at a cheap rate and in unlimited quantity. But we must not expect too much of a mollusk's mind. In their cheapness lies the offense of the aniline dyes in the minds of some people. Our modern aristocrats would delight to be entitled porphyrogeniti and to wear exclusive gowns of purple and scarlet from the isles of Elisha, as was done in Ezekiel's time. But when any shop girl or sailor can wear the royal color, it spoils its beauty in their eyes. Applied science accomplishes a real democracy, such as legislation has ever failed to establish. Any kind of dye found in nature can be made in the laboratory whenever its composition is understood and usually it can be made cheaper and purer than it can be extracted from the plant. But to work out a profitable process for making it synthetically is sometimes a task requiring high skill, persistent labor, and heavy expenditure. One of the latest and most striking of these achievements of synthetic chemistry is the manufacture of indigo. Indigo is one of the oldest and fastest of the dyestuffs. To see that it is both ancient and lasting, look at the unfaded blue cloths that enwrap an Egyptian mummy. When Caesar conquered our British ancestors, he found them tattooed with woad, the native indigo. But the chief source of indigo was, as the name implies, India. In 1897, nearly a million acres in India were growing the indigo plant, and the annual value of the crop was $20 million. Then the fall began, and by 1914, India was producing only $300,000 worth. What had happened to destroy this profitable industry? Some blight or insect? No, it was simply that Badiche Anilin und Soda Fabrik had worked out a special process for making artificial indigo. That indigo, on breaking up, gave off aniline, was discovered as early as 1840. In fact, that was how aniline got its name. For when Fritsch distilled indigo with caustic soda, he called the colorless distillate aniline from the Arabic name for indigo, anil or al-nil, that is, the blue stuff. But how to reverse the process and get indigo from aniline puzzled chemists for more than 40 years until finally it was solved by Adolf von Bayer of Munich, who died in 1917 at the age of 84. He worked on the problem of the constitution of indigo for 15 years and discovered several ways of making it. It is possible to start from benzene, toluene, or naphthalene. The first process was the easiest, but if you will refer to the products of the distillation of tar, you will find that the amount of toluene produced 
is less than the naphthalene, which is hard to dispose of. That is, if a dye factory had worked out a process for making indigo from toluene, it would not be practicable because there was not enough toluene produced to supply the demand for indigo. So the more complicated naphthalene process was chosen in preference to the others in order to utilize this by-product. The Badish Aniline und Soda Fabrik spent $5 million and 17 years in chemical research before they could make indigo, but they gained a monopoly, or, to be exact, 96% of the world's production. A hundred years ago, indigo cost as much as $4 a pound. In 1914, we were paying 15 cents a pound for it. Even the pauper labor of India could not compete with the German chemists at that price. At the beginning of the present century, Germany was paying more than $3 million a year for indigo. Fourteen years later, Germany was selling indigo to the amount of $12.6 million. Besides its cheapness, artificial indigo is preferable because it is of uniform quality and greater purity. Vegetable indigo contains from 40 to 80% of impurities, among them various other tinctorial substances. Artificial indigo is made pure and of any desired strength, so the dyers can depend on it. The value of the aniline colors lies in their infinite variety. Some are fast, some will fade, some will stand wear and weather as long as the fabric some will wash out on the spot. Dyes can be made that will attach themselves to wool, silk, or to cotton, and give it any shade of any color. The period of discovery by accident has long gone by. The chemist nowadays decides first just what kind of a dye he wants, and then goes to work systematically to make it. He begins by drawing a diagram of the molecule, double-linking nitrogen or carbon and oxygen atoms to give the required intensity, putting in acid or basic radicals to fasten it to the fiber, shifting the color back and forth along the spectrum at will by introducing methyl groups until he gets it just to his liking. Art can go ahead of nature in the dye-stuff business, before man found that he could make all the dyes he wanted from the tar he had been burning up at home, he searched the wide world over to find colors by which he could make himself, or his wife, garments as beautiful as those that arrayed the flower, the bird, and the butterfly. He sent divers down into the Mediterranean to rob the murex of his purple. He sent ships to the New World to get Brazil wood, and to the oldest world for indigo. He robbed the Lady Cochineal of her scarlet coat. Why these peculiar substances were formed only by these particular plants, mussels, and insects, it is hard to understand. I don't know that Mrs. Cacti Coccus derived any benefit from her scarlet uniform, 
when khaki would be safer, and I can't imagine that to a shellfish it was of advantage to turn red as it rots, or to an indigo plant that its leaves in decomposing should turn blue. But anyhow, it was man that took advantage of them until he learned how to make his own dyestuffs. Our independent ancestors got along so far as possible with what grew in the neighborhood. Sweet apple bark gave a fine saffron yellow. Ribbons were given the hue of the rose by pokeberry juice. The Confederates in their butternut-colored uniform were almost as invisible as if in khaki or feldgrau. Matter was cultivated in the kitchen garden. Only logwood from Jamaica and indigo from India had to be imported. That we are not so independent today is our own fault, for we waste enough coal tar to supply ourselves and the other countries with all the new dyes needed. It is essentially a question of economy and organization. We have forgotten how to economize, but we have learned how to organize. The British government gave the discoverer of mauve a title, but it did not give him any support in his endeavors to develop the industry. Although England led the world in textiles and needed more dyes than any other country, so in 1874, Sir William Perkin relinquished the attempt to manufacture the dyes he had discovered because, as he said, Oxford and Cambridge refused to educate chemists or to carry on research. Their students, trained in the classics for the profession of being a gentleman, showed a decided repugnance to the laboratory on account of its bad smells. So when Hoffman went home, he virtually took the infant industry along with him to Germany, where PhDs were cheap and plentiful, and not afraid of bad smells. There the business throve amazingly, and by 1914 the Germans were manufacturing more than three-fourths of all the coal tar products of the world, and supplying material for most of the rest. The British cursed the universities for thus imperiling the nation through their narrowness and neglect. But this accusation, though natural, was not altogether fair, for at least half the blame should go to the British dyer, who did not care where his colors came from so long as they were cheap. When finally the universities did turn over a new leaf and began to educate chemists, the manufacturers would not employ them. Before the war, six English factories producing dyestuffs employed only 35 chemists altogether, while one German color works, the Hoekster Farbwerk, employed 307 expert chemists and 74 technologists. This firm united with the six other leading dye companies of Germany on January 1, 1916, to form a trust to last for 50 years. During this time, they will maintain uniform prices and uniform wage scales and hours of labor and exchange patents and secrets. 
They will divide the foreign business pro rata and share the profits. The German chemical works made big profits during the war, mostly from munitions and medicines, and will be, through this new combination, in a stronger position than ever to push the export trade. As a consequence of letting the dye business get away from her, England found herself in a fix when war broke out. She did not have dyes for her uniforms and flags, and she did not have drugs for her wounded. She could not take advantage of the blockade to capture the German trade in Asia and South America, because she could not color her textiles. A blue cotton dye stuff that sold before the war at 60 cents a pound brought $34 a pound. A bright pink rhodamine, formerly quoted at a dollar a pound, jumped to $48. When one keg of dye ordinarily worth $15 was put up at a forced auction sale in 1915, it was knocked down at $1,500. The Highlanders could not get the colors for their kilts until some German dyes were smuggled into England. The textile industries of Great Britain, that brought in a billion dollars a year and employed one and a half million workers, were crippled for lack of dyes. The demand for high explosives from the front could not be met because these are largely coal tar products. Picric acid is both a dye and an explosive. It is made from carbolic acid, and the famous trinitrotoluene is made from toluene, both of which you will find in the list of the ten fundamental crudes. Both Great Britain and the United States realized the danger of allowing Germany to recover her former monopoly, and both have shown a readiness to cast overboard their traditional policies to meet this emergency. The British government has discovered that a country without a tariff is a land without walls. The American government has discovered that an industry is not benefited by being cut up into small pieces. Both governments are now doing all they can to bring up big concerns and to provide them with protection. The British government assisted in the formation of a national company for the manufacture of synthetic dyes by taking one-sixth of the stock and providing $500,000 for a research laboratory. But this effort is now reported to be a great failure because the government put it in charge of the politicians instead of the chemists. The United States, like England, has become dependent upon Germany for its dyestuffs. We imported nine-tenths of what we used, and most of those that were produced here were made from imported intermediates. When the war broke out, there were only seven firms and 528 persons employed in the manufacture of dyes in the United States. One of these, the Scholl Cope Aniline and Chemical Works of Buffalo, deserves mention for it had stuck it out ever since 1879, and in 1914 was making 106 dyes. In June 1917, 
This firm, with the encouragement of the Government Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce, joined with some of the other American producers to form a trade combination, the National Aniline and Chemical Company. The DuPont Company also entered the field on an extensive scale, and soon there were 118 concerns engaged in it with great profit. During the war, $200 million was invested in the domestic dyestuff industry. To protect this industry, Congress put on a specific duty of five cents a pound and an ad valorem duty of 30% on imported dyestuffs. But if, after five years, American manufacturers are not producing 60% in value of the domestic consumption, the protection is to be removed. For some reason, not clearly understood and therefore hotly discussed, Congress at the last moment struck off the specific duty from two of the most important of the dyestuffs, indigo and alizarin, as well as from all medicinals and flavors. The manufacture of dyes is not a big business, but it is a strategic business. Heligoland is not a big island, but England would have been glad to buy it back during the war at a high price per square yard. American industries employing over two million men and women and producing over three billion dollars worth of products a year are dependent upon dyes. Chief of these is, of course, textiles, using more than half the dyes. Next come leather, paper, paint, and ink. We have been importing more than $12 million worth of coal tar products a year, but the cottonseed oil we exported in 1912 would alone suffice to pay that bill twice over. But although the manufacture of dyes cannot be called a big business, in comparison with some others, it is a paying business when well managed. The German concerns paid on average 22% dividends on their capital and sometimes as high as 50%. Most of the standard dyes have been so long in use that the patents are off and the processes are well enough known. We have the coal tar and we have the chemists so there seems no good reason why we should not make our own dyes, at least enough of them so we will not be caught napping as we were in 1914. It was decidedly humiliating for our government to have to beg Germany to sell us enough colors to print our stamps and greenbacks and then have to beg Great Britain for permission to bring them over by Dutch ships. The raw material for the production of coal tar products we have in abundance if we will only take the trouble to save it. In 1914, the crude light oil collected from the coke ovens would have produced only about 4.5 million gallons of benzol and 1.5 million gallons of toluol but in 1917, this output was raised to 40.2 million gallons of benzol and 10.2 million of toluol. The toluol was used mostly in the manufacture of 
trinitrotoluol for use in Europe. When the war broke out in 1914, it shut off our supply of phenol, carbolic acid, for which we were dependent upon foreign sources. This threatened not only to afflict us with headaches by depriving us of aspirin, but also remove the consolation of music, for phenol is used in making phonographic records. Mr. Edison, with his accustomed energy, put up a factory within a few weeks for the manufacture of synthetic phenol. When we entered the war, the need for phenol became yet more imperative, for it was needed to make picric acid for filling bombs. This demand was met, and in 1917 there were 15 new plants, turning out 64,146,499 pounds of phenol, valued at $23,719,805. Some of the coal products, as we see, serve many purposes. For instance, picric acid appears in three places in this book. It is a high explosive. It is a powerful and permanent yellow dye, as anyone who has touched it knows. Thirdly, it is used as an antiseptic to cover burned skin. Other coal dyes are used for the same purpose. Malachite green, brilliant green, crystal violet, ethyl violet, and Victoria blue. So a patient in a military hospital is decorated like an Easter egg. During the last five years, surgeons have unfortunately had unprecedented opportunities for the study of wounds, and fortunately they have been unprecedentedly successful in finding improved methods of treating them. In former wars, a serious wound meant usually death or amputation. Now nearly 90% of the wounded are able to continue in the service. The reason for this improvement is that medicines are now being made to order instead of being gathered from China to Peru. The old herb doctor picked up any strange plant that he could find and tried it on any sick man that would let him. This empirical method, though hard on the patients, resulted in the course of 5,000 years in the discovery of a number of useful remedies. But the modern medicine man, when he knows the cause of the disease, is usually able to devise ways of counteracting it directly. For instance, he knows, thanks to Pasteur and Mechnikoff, that the cause of wound infection is the bacterial enemies of man, which swarm by the million into any breach in his protective armor, the skin. Now, when a breach is made in a line of entrenchments, the defenders rush troops to the threatened spot for two purposes, constrictive and destructive, engineers and warriors, the former to build up the rampart with sandbags, the latter to kill the enemy. So, when the human body is invaded, the blood brings to the breach two kinds of defenders, one is the serum, which neutralizes the bacterial poison and, by coagulating, 
forms a new skin or scab over the exposed flesh. The other is the phagocytes, or white corpuscles, the free lances of our corporeal militia, which attack and kill the invading bacteria. The aim of the physician is then to aid these defenders as much as possible without interfering with them. Therefore, the antiseptic he is seeking is one that will assist the serum in protecting and repairing the broken tissues and will kill the hostile bacteria without killing the friendly phagocytes. Carbolic acid, the most familiar of the coal tar antiseptics, will destroy the bacteria when it is diluted with 250 parts of water, but unfortunately it puts a stop to the fighting activities of the phagocytes when it is only half that strength, or 1 to 500, so it cannot destroy the infection without hindering the healing. In this search for substances that would attack a specific disease germ, one of the leading investigators was Professor Paul Ehrlich, a German physician of the Hebrew race. He found that aniline dyes were useful for staining slides under the microscope, for they would pick out particular cells and leave others uncolored, and from this starting point he worked out organic and metallic compounds, which would destroy the bacteria and parasites that cause some of the most dreadful of diseases. A year after the war broke out, Professor Ehrlich died while working in his laboratory on how to heal with coal tar compounds the wounds inflicted by explosives from the same source. One of the most valuable of the aniline antiseptics employed by Ehrlich is flavine, or, if the reader prefers to call it by its full name, diaminomethyl acridinium chloride. Flavine, as its name implies, is a yellow dye and will kill the germs causing ordinary abscesses when in solution as dilute as one part of the dye to 200,000 parts of water. But it does not interfere with the bactericidal action of the white blood corpuscles unless the solution is 400 times as strong as this, that is, one part in 500. Unlike carbolic acid and other antiseptics, it is said to stimulate the serum instead of impairing its activity. Another antiseptic of the coal tar family, which has recently been brought into use by Dr. Dakin of the Rockefeller Institute, is that called by European physicians chloramine T, and by American physicians chlorazine, and by chemists paratoluene sodium sulfochloramide. This may serve to illustrate how a chemist is able to make such remedies as the doctor needs, instead of depending upon the accidental by-products of plants. On an earlier page, I explained how, by starting with the simplest of ring compounds, the benzene of coal tar, we could get aniline. Suppose we go a step further and boil the aniline oil with acetic acid, which is the acid of vinegar minus its water. This easy process gives us acetanilid, 
which when introduced into the market some years ago under the name of antifebrin made a fortune for its makers the making of medicines from coal tar began in eighteen seventy four when colby made salicylic acid from carbolic acid salicylic acid is a rheumatism remedy and had previously been extracted from willow bark if now we treat salicylic acid with concentrated acetic acid we get aspirin from aniline again are made phenacetin antipyrin and a lot of other drugs that have become altogether too popular as headache remedies say rather headache relievers another class of synthetics equally useful and likewise abused are the soporifics such as sulfonol veronol and medinol when it is not desired to put the patient to sleep but merely to render insensible a particular place as when a tooth is to be pulled cocaine may be used this like alcohol and morphine has proved a curse as well as a blessing and its sale has had to be restricted because of the many victims to the habit of using this drug cocaine is obtained from the leaves of the south american coca tree but can be made artificially from coal tar products the laboratory is superior to the forest because other forms of local anesthetics such as eucane and novocaine can be made that are better than the natural alkaloid because more effective and less poisonous i must not forget to mention another lot of coal tar derivatives in which some of my readers will take a personal interest that is the photographic developers i am old enough to remember when we used to develop our plates in ferrous sulfate solution and you never saw nicer negatives than we got with it but when pyrogallic acid came in we switched over to that even though it did stain our fingers and sometimes our plates later came a swarm of new organic reducing agents under various fancy names such as metol hydro short for hydroquinone and icongen the image maker every fellow fixed up his own formula and called his fellow members of the camera club fools for not adopting it though he secretly hoped they would not under the double stimulus of patriotism and high prices the american drug and dye stuff industry developed rapidly in nineteen seventeen about as many pounds of dyes were manufactured in america as were imported in nineteen thirteen and our exports of american-made dyes exceeded in value our imports before the war in nineteen fourteen the output of american dyes was valued at two point five million dollars in nineteen seventeen it amounted to over fifty million dollars this does not mean that the problem was solved for our home products were not equal in variety and sometimes not in quality to those made in germany many valuable dyes were lacking and the cost was of course much higher 
whether the american industry can compete with the foreign in an open market and on equal terms is impossible to say because such conditions did not prevail before the war and they are not going to prevail in the future formerly the large german cartels through their agents and branches in this country kept the business in their own hands and now the american manufacturers are determined to maintain the independence they have acquired they will not depend hereafter upon the tariff to cut off competition but have adopted more effective measures the forty five hundred german chemical patents that had been seized by the alien property custodian were sold by him for two hundred fifty thousand dollars to the chemical foundation an association of american manufacturers organized for the americanization of such institutions as may be affected thereby for the exclusion or elimination of alien interests hostile or detrimental to said industries and for the advancement of chemical and allied science and industry in the united states the foundation has a large fighting fund so that it may be able to commence immediately and prosecute with the utmost vigor infringement proceedings whenever the first german attempt shall hereafter be made to import into this country so much mystery has been made of the achievements of german chemists as though the teutonic brain had a special lobe for that faculty lacking in other craniums that i want to quote what dr hesse says about his first impressions of a german laboratory of industrial research directly after graduating from the university of chicago in eighteen ninety six i entered the employ of the largest coal tar dye works in the world at its plant in germany and indeed in one of the research laboratories this was my first trip outside the united states and it was of course an event of the first magnitude for me to be in europe and as a chemist to be in germany in a german coal tar dye plant and to cap it all in its research laboratory a real sanctum sanctorum for chemists in a short time the daily routine wore the novelty off my experience and i then settled down to calm analysis and dispassionate appraisal of my surroundings and to compare what was actually before and around me with my expectations i found that the general laboratory equipment was no better than what i had been accustomed to that my colleagues had no better fundamental training than i had enjoyed nor any better fact or manipulative equipment than i that those in charge of the work had no better general intellectual equipment nor any more native ability than had my instructors in short there was nothing new about it all nothing that we did not have back home nothing except the specific problems that were engaging their attention and the special opportunities of attacking them those problems were of no higher order of complexity 
than those I had been accustomed to for years. In fact, most of them were not very complex from a purely intellectual viewpoint. There was nothing inherently uncanny, magical, or wizardly about their occupation whatever. It was nothing but plain hard work and keeping everlastingly at it. Now, what was the actual thing behind that chemical laboratory that we did not have at home? It was money, willing to back such activity, convinced that in the final outcome a profit would be made, money, willing to take university graduates expecting from them no special knowledge other than a good and thorough grounding in scientific research, and provide them with opportunity to become specialists suited to the factory's needs. It is evidently not impossible to make the United States self-sufficient in the matter of coal-tar products. We've got the tar, we've got the men, we've got the money too. Whether such a policy would pay us in the long run, or whether it is necessary as a measure of military or commercial self-defense, is another question that cannot here be decided. But whatever share we may have in it, the coal-tar industry has increased the economy of civilization and added to the wealth of the world by showing how a waste by-product could be utilized for making new dyes and valuable medicines, a better use for tar than as fuel for political bonfires and as clothing for the nakedness of social outcasts. End of chapter 4, part 2 of 2 End of section 5